That's what it looks like to be a generation that carries light, that carries the message and the reality of Jesus, not, to only, not only to other people, but to ourselves. To choose to declare in faith the identity of our God, because that changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Jesus, we come to you in this moment full of gratitude not for moments of worship on Tuesdays that just feel like they're hype. But we're full of gratitude for how good you are and how we can sit in awe and wonder of who you are for eternity and still not see it all. God, I pray that you would remind us of that tonight. I pray that you would heal hearts, mend relationships, inject hope and just continue to reveal yourself to us. God, I pray that our hearts would be open to what you have to say to all of us tonight. God, we love you. We say this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Overflow. Look at the person beside you and say, God's best. That's the title of the message tonight. You can grab a seat. We're in week two of our series called Dating Why Bother, and there's a lot to be excited about tonight. Uh, (laughs) We have an interest meeting for our internship program tonight, which means that I've got to be on time. And if you were here last week, you you saw me fail at that miserably. I didn't realize this. No one told me, except for the clock that I was supposed to be looking at. I preached for 56 minutes last week. I know, somebody said, we know, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. There are some things that needed to be said, right? If you weren't here last week, I hope that you will find the time to go back and look at the message uh, last week because I think that it's, I think it's an important one. And I've been thinking a lot about it over the past week and I've had some really, really great conversations with a lot of you and The thing that just keeps kind of coming to my mind over and over again when I think about us as a generation and us as a church and us as people who are choosing to follow the way of Jesus by denying ourselves and picking up our cross daily, the question that I would just love to ask you tonight before we go anywhere else in the message is this, is what if the world was skeptical of our theology but envious of how we treat each other? What if the world was skeptical about what we thought skeptical about what the church believes, but they were envious about how we treated each other? What if our dating relationships were the most healthy relationships in all the world? What if our marriages were the most healthy in all the world? One day when you become parents, what if the best parents were in the church? What if the best parents were Jesus' followers? What if when the world looked at the church, they didn't see all the things that were against, but they saw the things that were for? What if they saw us living out the way of Jesus in our everyday, ordinary life, every moment of every day? What if they saw us being a people that disagreed well and valued health in our relationships and cared for people, genuinely cared for people? It's just a thought that's been stuck on my mind on repeat. I think it's our calling. Yeah, we've got some theology, we've got some beliefs that don't make sense to the world. Oh, there's those water bottles. 
I love those water bottles. I have nothing, I have nothing against them. Uh, but what if the world was envious about how we treated each other? Here's the reality. The re, the, when I think about dating and I think about identity and sex and all the things that we talked about last week, I think that there is a, a bit of poison in the way that we see some things, in the way that we see the way that we interact with each other. And it's this, that the worship of self is responsible for the destruction of countless marriages, relationships, and families. Our culture has fed us a bit of a lie that if we worship ourselves, we will find fullness. If we bow down to all of the things that we think are right, we will find happiness. And the reason that the message mattered so much last week is because I think it's us putting our toe in the water and saying, no, we're not gonna fall for that lie. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to speak in an event at another church in town. And the thing that we talked about uh, all weekend was if God, if we, if we ignore God's identity calling on our life and we listen to the enemies, we will become isolated and eventually destroyed. That's something that you and I cannot afford because God has a calling and a purpose on your life and we've got to step into it, especially when it comes to dating. And here's the reality. Uh, like I said last week, I've been uh, dating Maddie for almost 10 years. Uh, I remember last week I told you don't text her uh, about the fact that I didn't know the exact date that we started dating and no one texted her, but then someone did talk to her on Sunday in person. She said, hey, Carson, you remember when you, when you told everybody to not text Maddie at Overflow? And I was like, yeah, thanks, Brittany. Like I, I was like, that was supposed to be that was supposed to be a secret. Like I told you not to text her, but now you're just telling her in person. It's like, okay, cool. Uh, we, Maddie and I have been talking about this and she was like, man, we should do like a panel conversation on marriage. And I was like, no, cause you hang me out to dry. Like uh, you just tell everybody all my worst secrets. But uh, the thing that I was thinking about is this story <laughs> of how Maddie and I started dating. Uh, I was at her house uh, for two weeks straight eating dinner with her family. Uh, fun fact, the way that that happened was uh, Maddie and I had been talking just a little bit. I don't remember all the details. Don't quote me on all these details. But all I remember uh, is I, I, I liked Maddie. Maddie referred to me as the cute sound guy uh, because I was running sound at the time. Guys, if you want a girlfriend, maybe you should go run sound. It worked out for me. Uh, I'm being serious. Jacob Turner would love to talk to you. But uh, one of, one, of my, one of my jobs that in that time, I was a part-time intern, literally was to mop this stage. It was like at the end of the week, every week, my job was to just mop it. And I will never forget it. I was standing here mopping and I was like halfway through. I feel like I was standing somewhere around here. And her dad walks through that door and he walks up onto the stage and he says, he was kind of being a little bit awkward. And he's like, of course, no, Matt, Maddie, was, Maddie was curious if you wanted to come over for dinner. And I was like, I am in, a, in an impossible situation right now. Do I drop the mop and say, yes, absolutely? Or do I like be a good steward? And like, oh, yes, sir, I, I, have to finish my, I have to finish my job, you know? And I just remember that moment as being like unbelievably complex in my mind. But anyway, I went to her house for two weeks straight after that night. I ate dinner there for two weeks in a row. 
And one of the nights towards the end of those two weeks, as we were like kind of talking about Maddie a little bit, Mike said, I, I, I need to get some ginger ale from the store. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll go with you. I've been wanting to you know, talk to you a little bit. Uh, so we got into the car, into his old Volvo. It was old then. He still has it now. It's now older. Like it, it's, it's something. Let me tell you something. Uh, but we're on the way to Harris Teeter to get the ginger ale. And I'm like, I'm shaking. I'm like, uh, I, I just wanted to tell you that I really like your daughter. And he goes, yeah, me too. <laughs> I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I just was, you know, I've just been really wanting to like, you know, spend some more time with her. And I don't think I asked like the specific word to like, could I date her? But I was beating around the bush pretty heavy. And I remember his response <laughs> so clearly. He said, yeah, man, just uh, be your friend. I'm like, did I just get friend zoned by her dad? <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? You know, I work for you. You signed my paychecks. Be your friend if you go any further. Okay, carry the two. You know, like what? I'm trying to figure this out. Pro tip, guys. If you ever find yourself in this situation, don't ask the question on the way to the place because if they say something like that, you are left with them in Harris Teeter and the whole ride home reconciling this in your brain. Like, what, what did he mean? What did he mean? Well, he actually, what he meant was so good because if Maddie and I couldn't be friends, then we could never date. And if we could never date and be friends, then we could never be married. And I'm here to tell you, 10 years into my relationship, Maddie is my very best friend. I'm not just saying that. She is my very best friend. We laugh more, we joke more, we have the deepest and the hardest conversations. Yes, we argue. The biggest thing that we argue about is where we're gonna go to dinner. It is the weirdest thing. It's like, Literally, Sunday night, we get out of night of worship. I can't believe I'm telling this story. We get out of night of worship and we have this beautiful night of singing praises to our king. We get in the car and it's like, where do you wanna to go to dinner? She's like, will you just decide? And I'm like, well, I, you don't like any of the places that I like. She's like, well, you don't like any of the places that I like. And it's like, and here we go. And it's like, that's the thing. But it's like, I love it. I love our life. There's not a single thing that I would change. She sent me a picture this afternoon of Lennon smiling with the sunset in the background. And, I, and I'm just in awe of what God has done in our life. Here's the reality. It's required us to be really faithful to each other. But more importantly than that, we would not have arrived where we are today if we were not both pursuing God equally. And ultimately, it's God who is breathing life into our relationship. Not our attraction, not our similarities, not our opposites, not any of those kind of dating advice things that you hear in the world today. So there's three things that I need you to know about dating and healthy relationships before we jump into answering some of the bigger questions that we have to wrestle with tonight. And it's this, is dating can't substitute God. It just can't. If it's gonna work, it cannot substitute God. I think when I, I think about this a lot in Revelation chapter two, God is speaking to the churches in Ephesus and he's like, you forgot your first love. Your first love is to be Jesus. That is where you will find fullness in your dating relationships. The second thing is dating exposes what's already inside of you. If, if you want to like see the true character or integrity of someone, watch what happens when something doesn't go their way. And what is dating? It's really experiencing things that don't go our way. It's honestly marriage too. And we're gonna talk about that a good bit tonight. I love in, in Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel, where God is picking David up to be king. And he says to Samuel, like, God like, looks at the heart. 
every single time. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. And the third thing is healthy relationships are sustained by sacrificial love. If you're not willing to sacrifice part of your comfort for the other person, then your relationship, I just love you enough, is doomed to fail. And this is why this matters so much. The divorce rate is between 40 and 50% in today's world. 50% of kids are born into broken homes. That's a problem because at the center of God's heart, design and intention for the world is a healthy family. A A healthy family meaning a family that's focused on God. So I think when you and I begin to think about like, who are we gonna date and who are we gonna marry and what does life begin to look like? I think we've got a lot of questions. And I've had some conversations with some of you of like, I don't know who. How do I know that they're the one? How do I know that it's time to get married? So I wanna spend some time with the question is who do you date and who do you get married to? And remember our rule last week, if you're dating somebody and you're here tonight, you can't break up in the parking lot, okay? You're gonna wait till tomorrow and you're not gonna blame it on me and you're not gonna blame it on God because you're gonna take responsibility, right? Okay, so the three things that was in the message last week, if you weren't here, I'll go back and listen. Three things that make, I think, make it incredibly complicated for us to find the one, and we're gonna talk about that idea of the one tonight a good bit, are entitlement, unrealistic expectations, and comparison. We are all entitled to something. We all have unrealistic expectations to some degree at some point in life, and we're all constantly comparing. Social media ensures that we compare quite often. How many times do you pick up your phone and look at Instagram? Your phone will actually give you the analytic on that. I would encourage you to look at it. And not that Instagram's bad, but I'm just curious, like how many times do you log into Instagram and the first thought that you have in your mind is you comparing you or your relationship to someone else or someone else's relationship? If God puts some a part of his image inside of you, then you're going to have a uniqueness about you. And there's going to be a uniqueness about your relationship that no one else will really quite understand. There's things about Maddie and I that no one understands. Her sister doesn't understand. Her parents don't understand. My parents don't understand because it's unique to us. And that's beautiful. And I think it's a, it's a representation of how we are living out our God-given image in the context of our relationship. But this is really important. A constant display of entitlement is a warning sign that they are looking for something that you cannot provide. I hear this all the time. It's like, oh, they've got these expectations and they want me to do this and they want me to be like this. It's like, if they, if they have this like super long list and if you're that person, if you have this like list, it's like a mile long and it grows every single day, you are looking in the wrong place to find satisfaction and fullness. That person that you're pursuing or that person that you're with that you've got all these expectations for, they're not God. We talked about that in the way last week where like sex is not God. It can't provide lasting fullness and happiness. That's not just a religious statement. That's just reality. And yes, culture is catching up to this reality and seeing it and how destructive it has been in our world when it doesn't go ungoverned, doesn't go without boundaries. So the question that I have for you people that have like lots of expectations for the person that you would one day marry or, or, or potentially date or the person that you're dating is, do you live out the expectations that you're putting on your future partner? Do, do you? Because I think we're all like looking for perfection. But here's the reality is perfection is born in pride and leads to isolation and destruction every time. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love can exist without perfection. Jesus proved it. Jesus showed us how to do it 
in the way that he interacted with people who did not love him. Now, am I saying that you should not have expectations for your relationship? No, I think that you should. Especially women in the room, pay close attention to how guys treat you. Don't accept anything less than someone being good and caring and compassionate and cognizant of who you are. If someone treats you like you are just a body, run the other way. You are far more than your body. That applies to guys too, but you are far more. God has put a soul inside of you for you to cultivate and care for. Don't, don't miss that. Don't, get, don't miss the implications of God's identity that he has placed inside of you, God's image that he has placed inside of you. The other news that I have for you is you do not find the one. You choose the one. There's this idea in the world that we're just on a mission. We're on a hunt to find the one. Well, if you do a little bit of research, you actually find that that can be tracked back to a, a writing from Plato around 300 years before Jesus, where he wrote in the symposium that he believed that all humans used to have four arms and four legs, two sets of genitalia and two faces, one male and one female. And Zeus, the king of the gods, saw how strong people were getting, how populated the world was becoming. So he said, I've got a cool idea. I'm gonna cut everybody in half, doubling my amount of worshipers, but diminishing their strength. And that when you begin to date and you begin to, to get, think about getting married, you are literally looking for your physical other half. How crazy does that sound? She said, whack. <laughs> That's not accurate. Therefore, I don't think that it's fair for you to say there's only one person on planet Earth and all 8 billion people that you are on a treasure hunt to find. How cruel would that be? If God was like, I'm just gonna put 8 billion people on the planet, I'm gonna designate one person for them, and then it's like, survival of the fittest, go find them. But that's, that's not it. But you do, you do have to choose the one. And you've got to choose wisely, of course, but you've got to be confident in your decision. So who do you date? Who do you get married to? Someone who has a mission that you are desperately wanting to be a part of bringing to life. Someone who has a mission, someone who has a calling, someone who has a purpose that you're like, yes, I want to be a part of that. When Maddie and I started dating, she was um, working in a couple of different places. She was working at a surf camp, um, working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. She ended up going to help start a coffee shop called Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop that works with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Her heart for people, her desire to walk alongside of people that were marginalized and forgotten in society was like, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna be a fan of that. I, want, I don't want to miss a single minute in her life seeing her live out her God-given calling. And then she went to teach in school and now she works here at the church. And every step of the way, I get more and more excited to just be a part of the mission that God has placed inside of her life. And I think that it could be confusing. It's like, how do you like, you know, sort through all of these expectations and all of these different ideas about who to date and who to marry? Look at what their mission is. If they don't have a mission, if they don't have a purpose, then they're not ready to date. They might be one day, but they're not ready right now. Because you've got, to, you've got to have a sense of focus in life to be able to link up with somebody else, right? And by no means am I saying that if they don't have their perfect career you know, pathway filled out and if they're changing their major, that they're not the right person to date. That's not what I'm saying. But what do they value? Do they have some clarity about that? 
What are some core beliefs? What are some core desires of how they contribute to the world? Those are questions worth asking when you're considering who you're going to spend the rest of your life with, right? You want to be linked up in that. And this is actually the design of marriage. Let's go to Genesis chapter two. If you have your Bibles, um, I, I would encourage you to just continue to come back to the creation story because we see so much clarity about why God brought Adam and Eve together and what God believes about our companionship and our relationships and our marriages and inevitably our dating life when we look at the story of Genesis. He says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This was Adam's mission or Adam. This was his goal to tend to the garden. And the garden, if you look back at it, it was actually the size of a continent. He had a lot to do. So then that goes on to, the, to God saying in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And ladies, I, I promised you that I would come back to this this week to help give a little bit more clarity as to the word helper, because that can feel demeaning. When you actually look into the Hebrew, you'll find that helper translates ezer, which means partner. And when you look at the word suitable and you look at the context of the rest of creation and the rest of the things that were happening in the creation story, you'll find that God put them on equal footing and he put part of his image in both man and woman. And then you see later down in the story, the thing that we read about last week. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh, which is this idea of fusion, of two people coming together at the deepest parts of who they are. Their souls getting connected into a covenant in between them and God. Fun fact, uh, we can leave this verse up there. um, That was on me. That was on me. Uh, This verse was on a cake at a wedding shower of mine. I'm I'm not kidding. The two shall become one flesh. I still can't believe this happened. Was on a cake. Maddie and I went to a wedding shower. You can take that down, Tom. Uh, And... We, we walk in and we see the cake and we're like, the two shall become one flesh. That, that seems like it's a lot about sex and all of our parents are about to be here eating this cake. Like it, it was one of the more strange experiences of my life. Maddie and I were like, what do we, what do, we do? I'm like, do we just eat the whole cake before everybody gets here? And, and, I, and I'm like, your dad's gonna be here. Like he, he's gonna be thinking about this. What, what do we do? And it's like a total like mayhem in my heart and in my mind in that minute. But it's when you zoom out and you, and you take kind of the cultural pressure off of it for just a second and you look at the beauty of what God did, the way that God spoke marriage into existence, it really is beautiful because he made sex for a reason. He made it for a purpose to be fruitful and to multiply all throughout the world, and he uses it as a means through which to remain connected to your partner all throughout your life on the deepest of intimate levels. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But the reality is, is that verse is so good news because it means God has an intention and a beauty for you and I to step into. What is marriage? This is the way that I would define it. Marriage is a covenant commitment, a missional relationship, and is to be a reflection of God's image and character. That's one of the most beautiful pieces about when God brings Adam and Eve together. He brings two parts of his image together in perfect unity with a purpose and with a calling on their life. He speaks words of love over them in that moment. I loved the thought about the, the idea of a covenant 
was so significant uh, to God, especially in the early kind of years of the Bible and the story of the Bible. Marriage is a covenant between you and your spouse and God. God is a part of the covenant because God wants to rule the covenant and determine how the covenant operates and for the, the length of time that the covenant gets held together. And that is for life till death do us part as often it's said in wedding ceremonies. And here's the, the truth in the matter is what Jesus says about marriage is really convicting. It raises the stakes on marriage exponentially, I believe. In Matthew chapter nine and Mark chapter 10, we see this. Today, we're just gonna zoom into Matthew 19. So if you have your Bibles, let's jump all the way to the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 19, uh, it kind of sets up like this. He says, or Matthew writes, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his wife and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Here comes my wedding shower cake again. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God has joined together. Let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give, a wife, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Who's that directed at? Like Jesus is being really clear right now as to why this was happening and the depravity of it. But it was not this way from the beginning. Meaning it was the opposite of God's intention. It was the opposite of God's design. I tell you that no one who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And that kind of points us to a debate that was happening in that time, in Jesus's day, around the phrase ervat devar, which is the Hebrew phrase of something indecent. And it's super vague, but it was kind of the means through which somebody would determine whether or not they were going to get a divorce. And there was two kind of schools of thought. The first thought was by a, a, a rabbi, Shema, um, who believed that infidelity was what that was the intention, that God wanted you to stay together unless of sexual immorality, the ultimate breaking of the covenant that was brought in between two people and God. And then you see this other kind of like reality is Rabbi Hillel who said anything. And I, I've read several examples to like kind of put it in our modern world where this guy was essentially saying, if she burns the toast, Ervat Devar, she's out and no one's in. And people were beginning to be treated as property or as just, I don't like you anymore. You're not as attractive as you once were anymore. I don't really have a great reason, but I'm tired of you. Goodbye. Here's a divorce certificate. I'm done. And the reality is Jesus is like, no, 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 no. From the very beginning, God made this to be a covenant, a three-way covenant between a man, a woman, and God. This triangle, this beautiful image of what it looks like to, to represent God's Image. I love that he says this was not the way that it was in the beginning. He points us back to the creation story. And remember, we, we read out of Colossians last week, and it points us to the, to the reality and John chapter one, the supremacy of Christ, the authority of Christ, but also the deity of Christ and the reality that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, meaning Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was there for the creation story. So in Matthew chapter 19, he's actually just look, looking back and he's saying, oh, when, when I made this, I made it to be a long-lasting commitment where you give yourself to each other in sight of the Lord. And he goes on 
the disciples said to him, if this is the situation, (laughs) I love their honesty, between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who chose to live like eunuchs or choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Meaning he's talking about there are some people who, not to be graphic, were born without a critical part. And then he talks about how you can actually like choose to live as a eunuch for the sake of God's kingdom and to live in God's way and God's intention. But then he kind of lands the idea of like the ones who can accept the call of marriage should accept the call of marriage. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. It's going to require, I believe, four things. Commitment, patience, support, and submission. It's going to require you to be 100% committed. I heard somebody say one time, marriage is 50-50. Nope, it's 100-100. It's all of you and all of them moving together in unity. It's going to require patience. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient. And it goes on to a long list that's read at nearly every wedding ceremony. It's going to require your patience with the other person as you're reconciling your expectations, the things that you're entitled to and the things that you're comparing them to. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to need support. You're going to need Christ-centered community to support you. You cannot get married alone. You cannot date alone and it be healthy. You need mentors in your life. You need people who know everything. You need people who are saying, hey, hold on a minute. Maybe, maybe not. Does that align with the way of Jesus? And you're gonna need submission. The way that I would say it is, When you are married or when you're dating, the way that you find fullness and the way that you find health is by deciding that every day is a race to the back of the line. Meaning every time that you don't wanna do something, you lay that down and you say, I'm gonna serve the other person. It's this law of mutual submission. And we actually see it in Ephesians chapter five, which I really want to press into because it's one of the most extensive places that talks about marriage. And I think it's also one of the places that gets leveraged against people, not for people. And I want to bring a new level of clarity to it. So if you have your Bibles, let's jump to Ephesians chapter five. I have 11 minutes and 16 seconds. Lock in. Here we go. Ephesians 15 verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. What's the first word in that, that paragraph? Wives. Most of the time that I hear this paragraph quoted, it's a guy. Guys, this paragraph was not written to us. It was written to the wives, okay? Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and as Christ is the head of the church. This is critically important. You cannot miss this part. Is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which he is the Savior, now as the church, submits to Christ. So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But if you really want to know where the word submit comes from, you've got to zoom back out to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That comes before the piece about wives submit to your husbands. And it's Paul's crazy theology in that day and age, because this would be making no sense to the culture because it was all built upon hierarchy or this idea of authority as being dictatorship or husbands as being owners or dictators of their wife. And he says, first, submit 
to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then when we see wives submit to yourselves to your own husbands, the word submit is actually inferred from the original Greek from the original verse of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why is this important? Because it begins with mutual submission. It begins with this idea that we submit to each other, that we have respect for each other, that we have honor for each other. But then you look at the paragraph for the husbands. Just FYI, the husband's paragraph is like two times longer than the wives' paragraph. So for all the ladies in the room, hang in there with me. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Think about the care that he's referring to in this moment. But holy and blameless in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for the body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There it is again, taking us all the way back to Genesis 2. He says, this is a profound mystery but I'm talk about, talking about Christ and the church. However, one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. And this is so significant because when you look at the context of Ephesus, when you look at the context of that day, wives were oftentimes the, the, the people that husbands just used to have children. It's where husbands didn't feel like they owed their wives anything. And notice, there's no... There's nowhere that Paul writes, husbands, make sure that your wives are submitting or wives, make sure that your husbands are laying their life down as Christ died for the church. Notice that they're both gifts. They're both things that we can bring to the person that we get married to with humility and honor and respect, the law of mutual submission, the race to the back of the line. Think about just for a second, guys in the room, what did Christ do for the church? He died for it. He suffered for it. He washed feet for it. Not clean feet, nasty feet, inconvenient feet, uncomfortable feet. Jesus literally gave everything that he had for the success and the growth of the church. Guys, your calling is incredibly high in the way that you treat women, in the way that you treat your spouse. Ladies in the room, when you think about the word submit, the thing I would just encourage you to consider is trust. It's honor. It's the decision to be your husband's companion one day, to be locked arm in arm, saying we're focused on what God has for us. We're together. We're a unit. We're a covenant relationship with God as the head, with God as the authority, with God as the one making the way forward. So, because I'm running out of time, let's move to this idea of what is love. Because I think when you and I think about love, we have so many different ideas that the culture gives us as to what love is. The beautiful part is God was so clear what love is by Jesus, and we'll get to that in just a second. But just an observation, because I hear a lot of people talk about, I just can't wait to fall in love. Here's the thing I would encourage you with. If you can fall in love, you can fall out. If you can fall in love with somebody, then just as easily, if not easier, you can fall out of love with that person. 
You need something else to govern your love. You need God to govern your love. If you're gonna find fullness and you're gonna find health in a relationship, you've got to decide that God is gonna be the leader of the way. That God is going to be the one that you look to for the way that you treat the other person. And there's um, three different Hebrew words for love that we'll wait to put them on the screen until I get through at least the second one because <laughs> I, I don't want you to jump ahead. The three words are riyah, dod, and ahava. And <laughs> we can put it up there. The first one is rahiyah, the love that you feel for a friend. Dod is let's hook up right now. Literally, this is in Song of Solomon's chapter one. It's the way that it starts. This word is used by a woman looking at her husband saying, let's go to the bedroom right now. Your kisses are greater than wine is the original text. Ahava is this image of an unstoppable and committed form of love and companionship. And here's the reality. We need all three. We, we, we need to go on adventures and be, our, be, be best friends with the person that we date and the person that we one day marry. We, we need to you know, bring our sexuality to the Lord, but, like, but enjoy sex as an intimate and a good gift from God. We talked about that so much last week. But at the end of the day, we need ahava kind of love. Love that um, Solomon would describe in the text about as, as strong as death. And what he was trying to, to give you there, to give us there, is this reality that death is inevitable for all of us. Like we, none of us get to decide whether or not we exit earth. We need a love that's as powerful as that. We need a love that's as powerful as a raging fire or roaring water or other images that he gives. That's the kind of love that you and I need to cultivate in our relationship, to find health and to find fullness. But the question becomes like, what does God say about love? Well, John was an expert in it. He actually referred to him as the disciple that Jesus loved most. First uh, John chapter four, verse 10, he says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Notice, love is a noun and a verb. It's a feeling and an action. It's a description and decision. Notice this, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved. It's a, it's a feeling and it's an action. Meaning it's a feeling and a decision. It's not just something that you and I fall into one day. It's something we choose. It's something that we devote ourselves to. It's something that we take back the guardrails of our own expectations, our own entitlement. We lay down comparison to say, I feel this way and I choose you. Maddie and I choose each other because it's what God has asked of us. So three things that I think you need in your relationship, if you're dating right now or you're to date one day, to cultivate ahava kind of loves, pure affection, pure affection. Not affection driven solely by attraction, but pure affection in the way that Jesus loved and laid his life down for the church true companionship and unconditional sacrifice. No ifs, no ands, no buts. Other than G Jesus Christ and Christ crucified, that's it. You lay your life down for the other person. When the other person needs you to do something that you don't wanna do, 
you do it. Because God has asked you, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of honor for who Christ is and what Christ called us to do. When Lennon gets up in the middle of the night and I hear her, I don't often hear her and that's not a lie, I promise. But like I, when I do, to be really honest with you, I wanna fake being asleep and I want Maddie to go handle it. But unconditional sacrifice says I get out of bed because I'm at a race to the back of the line because I wanna give myself to my wife like Christ gave himself to the church. Christ is the perfect example for both women and men in this conversation because in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus submit to God's will in a very beautiful way. He says, I trust you, God, your will be done. Then he goes and he gives himself on the cross and he lays his life down for his bride. What would be different if that's how we did marry life? If we brought 100% of ourselves to each other? What if that's how we dated? What if that's how we thought about dating one day? Of not, I'm gonna be worried about my part of the kingdom that I get to keep fully intact. But the fact that I get to bring myself to another person out of reverence for Christ. I love in 1 John 4, just a little bit later down, in verse 13, he says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. I want to focus on, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. In light of your life right now, are you relying on God's love for you? Are you taking your cues from the way that Christ loved the church and the way that you talk about other people and the way that you think about marriage and the way that you think about what's next for you? Are you leaning into God's spirit? Are you leaning into God's truth? That's a question that only you can answer and answer honestly. In Deuteronomy 32, there's this beautiful song that Moses recites to the people of Israel. And he talks about God in this way of like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them. And the reality is a couple weeks ago, we talked about God's spirit and true spirituality is living in step with and oriented towards the spirit of the living God. And this word hovering that you would find in Deuteronomy 32, you also see in the very beginning where the spirit was hovering over the waters. Then you see it in the story of Noah and then you see it in the story of Jesus' baptism where God's spirit descended in bodily form like a dove declaring, this is my son who I am well pleased. Just for a minute, consider, what if God's spirit is hovering above your life, asking for all of it, no reservations. He's asking for 100%. His promise is to prosper you, to care for you, to bless you and to keep you, to show his favor upon you but it's gonna require you to avail yourself to him 
and to his way. And the song that we're gonna sing over the next few minutes is a declaration of trust in the character of God and the reality of who God wants to be to you. Because God wants to be your first love. And when God is your first love, everything changes about every love that you have after that. The way that you see yourself changes and the way that you see others changes. Because you're acknowledging the truth of who God is and what he wants to do in your life. I'd love to invite you to stand as we pray together. Jesus, thank you for tonight. God, I pray that we would lean into your spirit, that we would trust your word, that we would trust your plan, that we would trust your intention. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that's ready to receive your goodness. God, I pray that we would hear your voice in our heart and in our soul over the next few minutes, that your spirit has come to empower and to God, to teach and to build up, and the next move is ours, to look at you and say, I trust you. God, I pray that we would do that, maybe today for the thousandth time or the first time. I pray that we would use this song as a declaration of trust in who you are, what you have for us. God, we love you. We say this in your name. Amen.